Welcome to Inside the Director's Circle and this episode on how to effectively resolve disputes. I'm Jason Langford-Brown, your host, founder of the Director's Circle and practicing business advisor and coaching psychologist. Managing and resolving disputes is always a difficult one for leaders. Disputes can often lead to legal proceedings, so in the next episode we will explore how to navigate that minefield, but today we want to explore how we can do this before we even get to that stage, hopefully. And to help us with this, we're as always delighted to welcome one of our knowledge partners from the Director's Circle to add expertise to the subject. Today we are joined by Alex Bishop, Managing Partner and National Head of Dispute Resolution at Shoesmiths, one of the UK's leading, award-winning, I believe, and in my experience, one of the most progressive law firms. And to add a practical element, one of our business leaders has joined us all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, Angie Fife, CEO of PDSI, a market-leading property development services firm operating across the US, South America, Caribbean, and beyond. And just very quickly, before we get into the discussion, remember this is just a snapshot of what happens within our business leader community. So if you want to get more involved or get some deeper insights, visit directors-circle.com and click join the community button. So Alex, can we start with you? Um, I'd love, love just, I think, just to start with the notion of what you would class as a dispute. I think in the world of business leaders, that the language is often conflicted and we, we don't actually talk about disputes very often, we talk about conflict. I mean, are the two things different in, in your experience or in your professional opinion? Yeah, no, really good question, Jason. I think um, you're absolutely right from a sort of leader's perspective. We think of conflict in terms of that interpersonal conflict, employer, employee conflict, or, you know, it, teams falling out with each other. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we are absolutely talking about re- resolving uh, th- those interpersonal battles. Um, my level of expertise concerns the business-to-business disputes, and, and that's the terminology that we tend to use certainly here in, in England uh, in relation to commercial disputes. Uh, we're talking there about contractual claims that uh, where where two parties disagree over how a contract might be interpreted, or a corporate dispute, uh, shareholder director bust ups. Um, it could be you know, dealing with issues of fraud or, or you know, a whole host of different things. And the terminology that we tend to use here uh, when it comes to the court process or resolving those types of issues is disputes and dispute resolution. So it's interesting. It's just I mean, just reflecting on what you've just said there, it's. Probably when the, the interpersonal conflict um, escalates to where it might be legal, it's probably where probably my HR, HR lawyers get involved. Would that, be, would that be fair? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So when you're talking about employee issues and employee-employer disputes, that is, it is absolutely an, an, the domain of, of employment lawyers, of HR advisors. Uh, there is an employment tribunal process here in, in, in the UK that would deal yeah. with those sorts of disputes. Um, occasionally there might be a contractual element to it which flips it into the court process but it's the employment tribunal which is distinct from our court court system in that sense yeah absolutely so Angie I know you're not a lawyer you're running a business out there in the US but does it does it play out that way in the US or is it slightly different it it's similar Um, everything that Alex described is everything that we try to avoid and so when we're talking about dispute and conflict resolution from my perspective, a lot of that is interpersonal, it's within our teams, or it is an outcome of misunderstandings within our teams and our clients. And so, um, you know, getting to contractual disputes is, is what we pay people like Alex to avoid. And um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just so, you know, she's looking at things from a legal perspective. I look at things really from the from the team and the leadership perspective. 
Yeah, but it's the impact those teams can have with your contractual arrangements with your clients particularly. Exactly. And so it's our job, you know, to make sure that people do understand what's going on contractually and that there's clarity so that we can avoid the disputes or we can clarify them, identify them and clarify them as quickly as possible, which is really the key, in my opinion, to avoiding the disputes in the first place. Yeah, and I think you led me on to probably was going to be my question. You know, do you have a kind of process you go through to, to avoid it happening in the first place in terms of from a dispute perspective rather than a conflict perspective? So can you talk a little bit more about what you're asking there? Yeah, well, you know, you know, as you said, you've got, and I know for you particularly, you've got big contracts with some big, some big clients. So is it a very conscious thing to avoid disputes? And do you have something you do as a business to avoid disputes even surfacing at all further down the line? So, um, you know, one of the most important things is that each of the stakeholders agrees to what our scope is, our scope of work, and that's written into our agreements. And um, it might be written in in broad terms, and then it's our job to define it more clearly. And then it's the job of our team leads to make sure that every person on the team understands what that scope is. Once we start working out of scope, that's where we have some misunderstandings. And then, you know, you have clients yeah. who expect a little bit more or the team who is either over providing or under providing their services. And that's working in that gray area while, you know, sometimes it can be fun and exciting is is the most dangerous place for us. <laughs> Jason knows that because I think you've helped us through a couple of those situations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you're right. It's about that upfront piece of work, making that as resilient as possible. And then, as you said, make sure everyone involved is aware and, and follows that. And how does that, how does that sit with you, Alex, from a professional perspective? You know, does that sound like the right way to approach it or, you know, how would you see best practice in avoiding conflict disputes in the first place? I mean, there, we will regularly provide full-on seminars and sessions for our clients to help them in exactly that process because um, I absolutely inhabit the grey area that Angie's talking about. Uh, yeah. that it, and without those grey areas constantly appearing, I wouldn't have a job. So, you know, I'm. Um, uh, but, but having said that, you know, I see, I see our role is very much trying to help help our clients to either resolve their disputes or absolutely stop them before they start. Um, and, you know, Angie's absolutely right. For me, particularly when it comes to business-to-business issues, the contract usually governs those relationships. And getting the contract right from the get-go can avoid so many challenges later down the line. Um, there is, you know, th- there's a huge piece in terms of that scoping and specification and clarifying the language that is used. And, you know, again, one of my early lessons were f- from a, a judge was, you know, you've got to explain this to me in terms that a five-year-old child can understand. And there's a chance then that I might understand it. And I try and apply that methodology. I try and instill that in my, you know, the junior lawyers coming up, you know, try and draft that contract in a way that anyone who knows nothing about this business, knows nothing about these two parties would be able to pick it up and understand objectively what each party's obligations were. So that's that's a massive part of, of the exercise. And then the, the other piece when we kind of come, come in looking at the contract just in and of itself, the bits of the contract that most people find really boring and just skate over are actually the bits that actually as a litigator we spend most of our time looking at. And okay. so there I'm talking about things like choice of law and jurisdiction, you know, mm-hmm. it, you might not have pl- applied your mind to it, but, you know, 
is it a state in the US or is it England or is it actually somewhere in Europe? The UK, by the way, everybody, is not a law. Um, <laughs> there are three different jurisdictions. Yeah, uh, you know, th- things like that um, you know, can, can, can really uh, create issues for parties because what one jurisdiction might, might do with a contractual breach of a, of a certain nature might be very different to another jurisdiction. Yeah, um, similarly, having dispute um, escalation provisions in a contract can be really helpful because you can head things off at the pass sometimes when those conversations start. And then, um, you, you know, other things like, you know, is it the court process or is it arbitration or some other form of, of dispute resolution that the parties adopt? All of those sorts of considerations come into play. So as I say, those boilerplate pieces at the end of the contract are incredibly important. And, and again, you know, I would urge business leaders, you know, particularly if it's a contract of import, you know, whether that's in terms of value or profile or reputational significance, it, it, it may seem really dull, but those those aspects, look at it, almost look at the contract with the assumption that things have gone wrong and yeah. then what happens and make sure that you can navigate your way through in the event that something has gone wrong. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and then the other, the other key thing about the contract that, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me how often this happens. You know, things like exit provisions or schedules that you kind of agree to deal with later because you're just so focused on getting the contract signed and then they never get taken out of the drawer and looked at and that detail is never there. Well, you know, you're just playing into my hands then. Yeah, um, so you're creating that gray that, that gray area that Angie talked about, that uncertainty that, that means that, you know, that lawyers can have a field day, unfortunately. There's, there's some, some fascinating points there, Alex, uh, and I'm just wondering, wondering which order to pick them up in. But I think the, the first thing you said about the simplicity really resonated with me. So even in you know, my own corporate career, um, I think, you know, we're always guilty that when you get a lead, get to a legal document contract, it was always really confusing and, you know, didn't really understand it. And you almost just accepted that was just the way lawyers worked and they like to use big words. But it's interesting you say it should be the opposite. So that maybe that's a bit of a, a minefield for business leaders to think about that, you know, if it isn't simple, you don't understand it, actually question and challenge that. So maybe we'll come back on that. But that, that the details in the contract is, is fascinating as well. Um, and I kind of wanted to link that with the, the piece you were talking about at the end there in terms of, um, you almost, I suppose, you need to assume it. The point of the contract is to assume it's going to go wrong because you're only going to need it if it goes wrong, aren't you? Really? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just wondering from your perspective, Angie, because I know you are working across different territories. Have you, have you kind of learned the hard way on some of those details um, before you become as good at it as you are now? I'm assuming. <laughs> so, uh, I'm happy to say that fortunately we have not had to learn the hard way in terms of. Okay. Um, in terms of a project that's gone wrong, we've learned the hard way in terms of talking to our client too late. Uh, I mean, to our to her attorney too late and him looking at us and saying, why in the world did you just agree to that? Then explaining the ramifications. And then once we're aware, we're like, oh, that was not a good thing to do. So now, you know, we do work in so many different jurisdictions and, and Finding legal counsel who has expertise in each of those areas has been so important to us because what we assume for for Jamaica is completely different in Mexico. It's completely different in different states in the United States. And um, our attorney has become one of our best friends. You know, being being yeah. able to call him at any time and get really some good sound advice. And sometimes the advice is, 
you know what, this is just going to be a business decision you have to make. And so you can't over legislate everything. Otherwise, you're never going to have a contract. You're never going to have clients. But you do have to know at least what the risks are when you walk into the room so that you're not caught off guard. And that's, you know, that's one of the biggest things for us is the not being too specific in some of our areas and the means and methods by, you know, how we're going to deliver projects. Yeah, but but you but as you said, you're eyes wide open on those areas. But you've 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 got your jurisdiction right. You've covered the details. But interesting, you're saying that you know it's that again, it's that upfront bit that's 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 tripped you up. When when you were talking before that about you know, getting the contract out front, and um, and you talked about scope, Alex, as well. I kind of went into my project management mindset where you know lots of lots of business leaders, I'm sure listening will will be aware of that kind of feeling that we agree to do something for somebody and we get huge amounts of scope creep, which is definitely something that Andy will be aware of. Um, and I know when we teach people about that, when we say get get the scope and the brief and the estimate up front absolutely right. If that's clear and precise, then it's easy to control scope creep because everyone knew what you said you would and wouldn't do. It sounds like from a dispute, it's almost exactly the same thing. Get that scope contract absolutely right from the start and then you can reference back to that if it starts to go in a different direction and probably arrest it before it gets too serious. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But that it leads on to another really important piece and a common um, cause of many disputes that we find ourselves is actually a client may have got fantastic attorneys, lawyers on board, may have done a brilliant job getting the contract right and may have you know, nailed it. There is then scope creep, but what they've done is that contract goes in the drawer no one takes it and no one manages to the contract. So having ha- having a project manager who understands that contract inside out and back to front, and it never gets put in a drawer, you know, if it's a, if it's a significant yeah, yeah, contract, yeah, yeah. so that they are constantly referencing back and spotting straight away when something is or isn't in the contract or where something is unclear. You know, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't fester and become a massive problem in six months' time. You're having the conversation with your client, as Angie was alluding to, you know, right at, you know, as soon as it arises, not when it's hundreds of thousands of dollars or you know, millions of dollars or pounds um, you know, because of one party's been carrying on, on on a false assumption. Yeah, so what you would do then is you would, you would then agree not to do that because it wasn't in the contract or you just make an amendment. Correct. But it's done, again, it's done, it's done together, you're aligned, um, and so you don't move towards a dispute. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that's the ideal world situation. In my world, of it course. doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> yeah, can you say, can you talk about what, what, what really happens and why that is and if that's right? Sure. So in my world, we are often engaged on a project before a scope schedule or a budget are defined. It's our job to put that together. And so it could take us six or seven months of working through a project before we've all agreed on what that scope is. And during that six or seven months, the scope could change dramatically. It could change from what the initial idea is. And so um, the key, you know, while we say we don't want to work out a scope or, or everyone needs to know exactly what all the terms of the contract are, if we don't even have the scope defined, then there's a lot of area for us to get into trouble. And that's where I really have to depend on our team leads to make sure that they are documenting the conversations, that they're they're constantly revising what the draft scope is before everyone agrees to it so that we can go back and say, no, we took that out and we're not going to be working on it. Because there is an assumption sometimes, you know, that, yeah, we've talked about this one 
portion of a project and it sounds fantastic that the cost is too high. And then three weeks later, somebody expects it because they've heard that conversation and you have to be able to remind them that scope was taken out. Here's the reason why, here's who did it. And I know those aren't the fun, fun things to do, but, um, Sometimes those are the most important details to be able to memorialize those things and remind our client how we got to these certain decisions. So, I mean, we've had clients who who have forgotten what our agreed upon schedule completion date is. And while we might have conversations sometimes about, yeah, we think we might be able to get this done earlier, our agreed upon schedule completion date is completely different. And so when there's some some conflict about, you know, possible delays in our world, we're looking back at our schedule. We're looking back at our contract and saying, well, we're not really late. What we're doing is, you know, we're, we're suffering the consequences right now of maybe a lack of alignment in logistics, things like that, but we're still on schedule. And those are the difficult conversations to have because what you don't want to do is say, you know, we've just done a little bait and switch here. We told you we could deliver an X and now it's Y. Here's how we got here. And then they feel like we've been, you know, dishonest with them. So it's, I don't know, that's a little bit of a tricky situation for us. I wholeheartedly agree with you that it is about keeping those minutes um, and making sure that you are keeping that rec- record, evidencing what is discussed. And if if you had agreed an earlier completion date, let's say, well, that's a formal variation. That again, that's another thing that often trips people up because you know they think we've both agreed it, but the contract might well provide for a formal variation process. And if it doesn't comply with all of those you know, various different requirements to make it a formal variation, there is then an argument, a conflict, a dispute over whether or not it's a valid variation of the contract and whether it has or hasn't been agreed. So, you know, you're you're absolutely right. You can, having those minutes contextualizes that and you are able then to point back, well, no, it isn't a variation. We haven't agreed to that earlier date. We can aim for it, but it's in this context uh, and that date has never moved. Yeah. So, you know, that those those minutes of meetings, the emails that are sent recording those sorts of conversations, that's absolutely the key evidence that we need when these issues uh, bubble up. But there's an art to doing that, too. There is. There is an art because you, what you don't want to do is ruin any future sales opportunities with that client. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's probably a conversation we'll, we could probably roll, but probably worth flagging. I think you're absolutely right. I think the ability to be able to manage the client relationship in that process is is really, really key, isn't it? And, I, you know, I know we've, we've had conversations within your business how that's not always gone well. I think the two things I'd probably pick out of, of, of having a chance to see some of your team, Angie, is um, that is definitely a challenge. It and is. Some people do it really well and others struggle. It. but if you get it wrong it can be messy um but i think also i, I know sometimes you hear people almost because you can't have that perfect finished contracts and scope at the beginning almost say well we we can't do it because we can't have it perfect and finished but you've i think you've demonstrated there and i think alex has backed you up that you know you can still work on you know framing and building that together with the client and managing that process until you get to that that final document scope whatever it looks like so hopefully that's that's good practical advice for people listening on the podcast Okay, I'm, I'm conscious of time, and uh, but I, I think there's two things I wanted to do. One was I, I wanted just to segue slightly into that more interpersonal, what we would call conflict as opposed to dispute, because I know you're both business leaders, and maybe um, ask you just to finish the podcast for 
from a conflict perspective, when it's about people and not about businesses and contracts, what's your top tip for handling conflict? And uh, Alex, maybe could I then ask you on top of that, maybe to give your three top tips for avoiding disputes in your language? And maybe Angie, you give the same, but from a more practical perspective, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, so in terms of that that sort of conflict resolution, um, you know, it's it's your grandma's advice. You know, you've got you've got two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk <laughs> when when you're in that sort of situation. Um, so you know, and this isn't from a sort of employment perspective. It's just the sort of broad psychology of just trying to understand what is going on and understanding that everybody's lens is slightly different Um, and and trying to be objective, trying to uh, take any emotion out of of a situation. Um, And, you know, it's that, it, it's that piece that I think I would carry forward to the sort of the, the more kind of business to business disputes as well. Um, Very often, you know, Angie alluded to this earlier, you know, the lawyers, the attorneys might not be brought in right at the start. They might be brought in later. And they are faced with a very emotional client because things have got heated. They've got personal. Um, yeah. and, uh, and the job of the lawyer is really to try and cut through all of that and work out what the facts are and what the legal position is. And yeah, just absolutely. that kind of common sense element. So, you know, um, I'm genuinely not saying this um uh, for, for the benefit of my profession, but actually involving your lawyer earlier in in that process can actually pay dividends because it doesn't ever get as heated. Um, yeah. yeah, they don't. The, the other side don't need to know necessarily that the lawyers are on record. They're just giving you that steer that Angie alluded to. You know, this is not a battle you want to have, or or you know, giving you the ammunition that you need to go into that business conversation and try and resolve it. You know, face to face. 